Hey everyone, thanks for coming back to Real Leaders. I'm Sue Heilbronner, your host, and Real Leaders is the podcast that brings you the story behind the story of some of the most authentic, innovative leaders in the world. Now, before we jump into this week's episode, one quick ask, I know it's a pain. Going to do a review of a podcast on iTunes is an interface that none of us would admire if we saw it in a product we used every day. Have patience, punch through. I know you like this podcast, you say it and you listen, but just leave a quick rating for Real Leaders on iTunes. Today, we're joined by Jason Eckenroth. He's the founder and former CEO of Chip Compliant, which is a company that he'll be telling you all about. And we're reaching him today in Barcelona. So this is a global podcast. Hi, Jason. Hi, Sue. Thanks so much for joining us. Jason, the way we start out this podcast is we ask our guests to give us their three-minute life stories. So over to you. Okay. I'll, uh, I think that'll be, uh, that should be pretty easy. For me, I grew up in central Pennsylvania, had a great upbringing and very, very rural near all the farms, went to uh, University of Colorado as an undergraduate, getting a, I think, a master's in, I have to say, I think, because it's been a long time since I've I've done anything with it, master's in engineering. And while I was in uh, school at CU, I started a a company. And after graduating with my master's, decided I wasn't going to pursue engineering and instead just focused on the software company. And this was in uh, 1998, 2000 range and bootstrapped that business for the next 17 years. Recently, about about a year ago, year and a half ago, I sold that business and uh, four months ago moved from Boulder, which I had stayed, met my wife, married, have two kids and, and moved all of us to Barcelona, Spain. That's where I'm at. Well, tell us about your company. So my business was a compliance software company focused on the beverage alcohol industry. It was called Ship Compliant, and it helped wineries, brewers, distillers distribute their products throughout the United States uh, without any overhead regarding taxes and compliance rules. Like if you were to walk into a tasting room in Napa, California and order some wine to be shipped back home to Colorado, there was a myriad of regulations you had to follow in order for that that wine to, to get to you legally. So that was the basic version of the company ship compliant, but I did not start out with that niche and that offering in mind uh, at all. The, the story of the business, I think, is a lot more circuitous than just that. Where did you start? Well, I started um, while in college and started the business as a consultancy building web-based applications uh, for customers wherever I could find them. And at the time as a student, it was great. It was a great gig to have because it provided a, a fair amount of income for, uh, for the lifestyle of a student. After graduating, one of my best friends and I decided, hey, we, let's, let's incorporate this. And we were 50-50 partners and we kind of put our shingle out officially and intended to just continue to grow the business. Didn't really have any vision around specifically what it would look like except to continue to do what we had been doing, which is building web applications. This is back in 2000. Uh, my co-founder received a job offer and left the company in about three months in. And I decided to keep at it. I didn't really have anything else going on in my life that I was that passionate about at the time. Now, I had some work experiences uh, in college that I think really set in stone for me that I did not want to work for another company. And I, I had a, a fellowship through the government and getting my master's degree and, and working for government 
was probably the most soul sucking experience I'd ever had in my in my life. I turned into the world's worst employee. I was completely un, unmotivated and I was surrounded by people that were incredibly apathetic to their situation as well. Now that I'm sure that's not a blanket description, but where I was and I could see good people there and, and folks that had purpose on what they were working on, but they were surrounded by, you know, the bureaucracy of government just kind of forced this the presence of people that really didn't want to be there, but they were, and it dragged everybody down. And I just felt I did not want to be in that kind of an organization. And structural engineering is the type of a market where it's it's hard to be kind of independent and creative right out, out of the gate. You kind of have to pay your dues. I'm a lot less patient than that. So I, I thought, okay, I'll, I'll just teach myself some programming and I started building applications and I just kind of did that one step in front of the other. A lot of investors don't invest in companies or people that have started out as consultants because they think there's a low likelihood that they'll be able to convert into a business that's scalable. What do you think about that judgment? <laughs> I think that's a great, I think that's a very accurate judgment. Uh, I, I feel like starting my business when I was not yet even 21 was, uh, uh, at the time I saw it, like a few years after I started, I started to see how, you know what, I would never, I would never invite someone else to just start a business right in college. I felt like there were so many things I was learning in an incredibly expensive and, and tiresome way that I, I could have learned on someone else's dime. I could have learned somewhere else. And, you know, one of those uh, lessons was, you know, I was just following my nose at, at the time and, and consulting was a way to you see a problem, then you solve it and you get some cash for that. And then you go and you do it again. But as I was building the business, I realized the scaling limits that that created about four years into this kind of consultancy mode of my company, I was completely tapped out. I kind of felt like it was my midlife crisis. I was 27 and the company was doing probably half a million dollars in revenue with only a few employees. It was very profitable for someone like my age. It, I just kind of put the money in the bank every year. I didn't really have a, a, a need for it at the time, but I was totally burned out. And I resolved at that moment, I needed to find or build something that had value beyond the time that I was putting into the business, um, beyond my, my time. I kind of felt like an, you know, like an attorney um, or a dentist where I, I got to just go and kind of do the work every single day and create value. That became a real motivator me. If I had kind of known or seen future a bit, I could have short-circuited that. And so I decided you know, four years into the business that we have to move beyond this services mode and into something of a product. Um, this is around 2004. And that moment from kind of making that decision in 2004 until I would say that we had, you know, a profitable and sustainable software as a service company was probably another uh, six years. It took six years really to bridge that gap bootstrapped. And I can slice that into, you know, sections where it became, you know, life and death. And eventually there was a moment in the, in the business as I'm making this transition, going from its services to a, a SaaS model business where I literally had to burn the bridges. I had to, in effect, give away my legacy business, which was 75% of our revenue, I had to give it away in order to create the space to focus on the SaaS business. And uh, at the time, I had a, 
an overhead of a million dollars. I had $750,000 in revenue from a legacy business that I had sold for 200 K just to get it out because it was unprofitable and, and dragging us down and hoping that the next year the SaaS business would kind of fill the gap and bridge us to a point where we were break even. The story was, yes, I, I sold out of the business and we did bridge that uh, gap, but it felt like, you know, skimming the, like a scene from one of those movies where the propeller airplane just barely makes it over the ridge tops and you think you're going to hit the mountain and everything's going to end. But we did skim over the top, but it was really, really hard. It's a good thing you put all that money in the bank after college. I did because I plowed out, I plowed it all back in. I bet. Um, to make that, to make that bridge. But it's really, it does take capital to build up a software as a service um, business. It takes a lot of raindrops to make an ocean of revenue, especially if you're doing it purely organically. Yeah, I was self-funded, I was bootstrapped, but I, I used my own capital from the early days when we were profitable. So do you have people come to you and ask you what they should do in exactly this situation? What do you say? Well, let's say it's an entrepreneur that has an agency. And, and there's a, a lot of folks that I've crossed paths with that built up a nice sized agency of a few million dollars, maybe you know four or five million dollars, and they're facing the same kind of challenges. They feel like they've climbed that mountain. Yeah, it's profitable, but you know they sure hate waking up on January one realizing they got to go and do it all over again. And so they they have kind of the same resolution I had at the time. They got to create a product and they have some ideas. I've told them that same story. It's been a little more excruciating detail just so they, they understand not to scare them away, but they understand just how deep they've got to go to bridge it and just how hard it is that they, they will probably get to a point where they do have to burn those boats, where there's no turning back, where they have to be comfortable that that services or consulting industry is going to be gone and they may not be successful and they won't have anything else to fall back on except for the experiences and the memories. And I think if they have that mindset of just going for it, both feet on the boat rather than one on the, one on the dock and one on the boat, I, then I think their chances of success are a lot higher. So you've told us a story about a company that took 16 or 17 years to get to at least a transition point, which in your case was a sale. Do you have any regrets about the amount of time you spent building ship compliant? <laughs> You know, I did have regrets. Um, I did have regrets for probably the first 10 years. And That's it? Just 10 years? Just about 40% of your life at yeah. that time? Yeah, yeah, pretty much all my 20s, right? Because, you know, here's somebody that's in their 20s and they're not having fun. <laughs> like they see their friends having fun traveling the world. I had almost, a, you know, a bit of, bit of jealousy, a bit of, not necessarily, I guess, kind of the grass always looked greener. Like, okay, I have friends that are going to medical school. They're coming out of medical school, and, and they have this automatic security and job and salary. Bootstrapping the business, don't get me wrong, the first few years were, it wasn't always a ton of fun. It wasn't, it, it felt like at any moment it could kind of disappear from you. And part of that was the business model of, you know, services. They're here today and gone tomorrow. But um, part of it was just the, you know, kind of struggling through the early days of being an, uh, an entrepreneur and making you know bad mistakes with 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 hires and not taking care of myself physically very well and eating right and sleeping and things like that I was pretty I was pretty invincible in those 
in those early days. But before the business really got to a scale where I started to really see the power of what I could produce, what I could, what I could um, create with the platform. And when I say a platform, I mean it's, it's, it's not a technology platform. It's, it's a platform is, for me at the time, was, it's a business. It's, it's um, the, the people that are in t- incredibly skilled, that are cultural fits, that are aligned on our core values in the business. It's the revenue that's you know, recurring and, and coming in. It's the profitability of the business that gives us the kind of air cover to be able to place bets, um, invent new things, not just, not just meet the obligations that our sales team had signed us up for the previous quarter, but to really you know, experiment and play and to experiment and play with the organization as a platform, like figuring out how do I create an environment where the uh, employees are just, that is the best part of their day walking into that office, not the, you know, 4.59 p.m. when they're leaving. And so that was a much richer experience that if you were to ask me in the first, you know, four or five years of of the company, is that what you want? I would never have thought that. Right? I, I never would have thought that there, that there was so much more meaning and significance that you could create as an entrepreneur through just building the organization. And, and that started to show up for me about eight or 10 years in. I think we were probably at about three, three and a half million dollars in revenue in, in 2008, 2009. So anyway, that was where it started to become really fun. It started to become less of a, okay, it could disappear tomorrow and more of, wow, what else can I do with this? So you talked about building this company and how you you got some pleasure out of it during the mid to the, I guess it's the last third of the time that you were building this company. What are the things that you put into place as the leader there that you imagine made it the kind of place that you would have liked to work? The number one thing that I put in place was an awareness and then an adherence to uh, core values of the company. So- I mean, people say that. That is a very, very common statement for CEOs to make. I do a lot of work with executive teams. I do a lot of work on this topic. Most of the time, I think employees regard core values as a plaque on the wall. What made your company different? First of all, what made us different with regards to our core values, Sue, was we didn't ever really write them down until we were probably eight years into the business. I had read Tony Shea's book, uh, Delivering Happiness, and he went through his process of um, you know, s- surfacing the values of the business and trying to distill what was different between his first company and his second company. Why was it clicking? And it made me think about the, my journey up to that point, including the time with the government, on what wasn't clicking there, when was it, wasn't it not clicking in the, in the business, and when was it? And the commonality for me was I, I started to realize that these were kind of behaviors that I, as an, as the leader, as the founder, either celebrated or they were behaviors that I just abhorred. And it didn't matter more whether somebody was delivering the results. It was more how they were delivering the results. And, and so as an organization, we went through an exercise to surface, to kind of not to declare, this is what we stand for, but to say, looking at when we've been operating at a 10 out of 10, what was it that we stood for? 
And so we were surfacing behaviors that already existed rather than saying, putting a plaque up on the wall and saying, we desire to be innovative or we desire to operate with integrity. You know, our values were a little more, I think, authentic. Give me one that strikes you as being authentic. One of our values was own it, taking responsibility for outcomes. And own it would show up almost every day with our client services team. Our, our software was more of a middleware. It, it operated in between lots of different systems in our industry. And so there's so many opportunities when something didn't go right to point fingers and throw different providers under the bus. And it happened to us all the time. But our philosophy on it was to always own it. We're always going to take the responsibility for the outcome and the customer would have, would have no idea you know, whether it was our fault, it was somebody else upstream and so on. One of the things that that brings up, I never really thought about it that way. In the work that I do around conscious leadership, I talk about this notion that we say we're committed to things like integrity or whatever it is that we might be committed to a statement that would be a declaration of what a value is. When we look at the results, what's actually happening we actually have a much better sense of what we're committed to because generally the best evidence you have of your commitment is what's actually happening. I really like that frame for the generation. It's almost an inference exercise on core values. The other thing this brings up for me is that we think about a core values generation as something we do once. What's really cool about it is that it could be something you do every year if you do it the way you're saying and if you do do it every year and you are authentic, some of your core values might suck. And that could become part of the generation of an optimization for a company culture. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Like you know, we would set when we went, would go through the exercise and we would go through it every year at an offsite. And then we would, the executives would do this. And then we would bring it to the entire company, an optional morning meeting where we would ideate the uh, kind of the nomenclature of it, like, what do we call it? How do we refer to this, this behavior? And that's how we got, you know, kind of the snazzy names, but they didn't start as snazzy names. I have a, a, a Google doc of five generations of our core values and how they matured over the years. Yeah, I think that's, that's really fun. Like, I just like it. Maybe you wouldn't even call it core values. You would just call it the rules of engagement. And I can imagine, I'm sure not a ship compliant, but I can imagine that one of them might be we gossip, right? Because probably for some companies, it's just true. So you wouldn't, it's just kind of interesting to see. All right. So one of our goals for 2017 might be for that core value, not to be on our core values list in 2018. It's really a funny spin on that concept that I like a lot. Thanks for giving me that thought. Okay. So you were self-funded. When you talk to people, what do you articulate as the advantages and the disadvantages of approaching things that way? I can find very few advantages, like long-term advantages to institutional funding, to taking VC capital, frankly. <laughs> um, in my own experience, I definitely had a market advantage of operating in a, in a niche, okay? It was kind of a backwater industry that did not attract a lot of funded competitors, but we had them. Uh, there were six compliance, so, uh, wine industry compliance software companies when I got started, and it's a, not a big market. And two of them had raised probably over $50 million combined. And we outlasted both of them. And there were some strong lessons of competing with funded businesses 
as a self-funded company. So what's your most important lesson in that regard? The most important lesson was that being customer funded kept us so close to the ground, so close to the traction with the client. We were only going to survive or be around the next day if we were providing value to the customer. There was no noise in our revenue stream versus if we had raised a lot of capital, sometimes the investors I found judge the performance and the progress of a company, not on the money that they're making, but on the money that they're spending. Well, have you hired the so-and-so team? They're looking at these high-level metrics. We had no, no option to do it that way. Instead, every single activity had to result in some forward progress. So I would go into a pitch meeting at a client and I would explain who we were and where we were going. And I would explain you know, what we stood for. And I would draw comparisons between the fact that we were entirely beholden to our customers and the market rather than to a series of relationships that may have absolutely nothing to do with customers and the market. And it would resonate. That's a good way of articulating that. I like that. What do you think created in you the kind of person that would rebel against the idea of outside funding? I, I feel personally a lot of achievement when I'm able to make one plus one equal three, when I'm able to innovate a, a, a faster, cheaper, better way. Um, when we were building the business, one of my favorite moments was we were being outgunned by our funded competitors. And we decided to try to make a bigger splash in, in, in the market and try to kind of stand bigger than we were by holding our first user conference. The challenge was we only had three users in our, <laughs> in our market. So we, but we went ahead anyway. We called it a user conference. Um, we invited kind of the biggest, uh, most um, um, respected names in our, in our industry to speak. And they gladly accepted, which was great. We got FedEx to sponsor it, so it didn't cost us anything. And uh, we used Miles to fly ourselves out to California to, to, to host it. And we had a, you know, quote unquote, sold out. We were at capacity. We didn't charge for entry that first year. And we went about, uh, about midway through the day. We handed out awards, made this big announcement that we're handing awards out to our top three customers. <laughs> and they're all in the audience. We called them out by name and they stood up and they received their award. And you could see the look on all the other prospects looking at those with like, well, I want to receive an award too. And it was a great moment in um, swinging above our weight class and, you know, being bootstrapped forces you to have to do that. But that's kind of when I feel really alive. Yeah. So I think that's more than a one plus one equals three. I mean, it sounds like there's just a special glow you get in your heart when you get to be whatever the underdog, for lack of a better word, and really outshine the overdogs. Is that something that's been pervasive in other areas of your life? Yeah. <laughs> this is it's funny you say that. Yes, it has. In sports, certainly. Um, not a, uh, definitely not the first kid to be picked to join the team. So you got to try to outgun without keeping a chip on your shoulder. That's great. Is that true? Growing up, you were not the first kid to be picked or the second kid, I assume, from how you're saying it? Yes. There's a lot of mediocrity in my, in my academic and athletic results growing up. Yep. So 
if you were a mediocre performer, I mean, sports is kind of almost, well, I mean, I guess they both require some level of natural or organic benefit, although it's easy enough to undermine those in both areas. But here, in this case, with business, what made you fight so hard to be a winner if you didn't fight as hard in, say, academics and school? You know, as I've, as I've gotten older, I have seen a, an aspect of my personality come out that I, I wasn't aware of as a kid. I'm, I've become very into ultra-endurance uh, sports, uh, ultra-endurance uh, cycling in particular. And I found, and I've certainly heard this word, grit, really resonates with me. I know that it took a lot of grit sometimes. I feel like, oh, I think in a, in a weaker moment, now that I'm on the other side, Sue, and I've sold the business, and I'm now in a space where I'm kind of contemplating what I'm going to do next. And I look back on, well, what was my, how did I, how did I do it? And will I be able to do it again? I know there was a lot of grit there. And so there was a lot of tolerance for pain. But the, the secret, I think, was when I knew when to not bear that pain anymore and to make a change. And, and I don't mean to give up, but to, to switch. It was like that moment when I had a, the services business and I had a lot of pain of of being stretched super thin and, and having to work for every dollar, I decided I'm not going to deal with that pain anymore. And, and I actually heard someone this past year, they said, you know what? Great entrepreneurs don't have a high tolerance for pain. They actually have a low tolerance for pain. And it, it made me really think about, okay, you know, those, these, there were these pivotal moments in my entrepreneurial journey. And, and I think a lot of them were marked by actually having a low tolerance for pain, even though, you know, I counted on that high tolerance for pain to kind of bootstrap through the long stretches of when it, when it's not fun. Yeah. I mean, your business basically is an ultra. That's basically what you ran with ship compliance. So it's really great to hear you talk about this new athletic pursuit. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very true. All right. So here you are, you're, you're living in Barcelona. It sounds like you're taking some time at least away from your business climate and school climate for the last 20 years. If your next business also is going to be an ultra, if there is a next business, if the next thing you really dive into is a 16-year pursuit, you got to be really careful in picking what you do. Huh. You know, I haven't worried about it. And I used to really worry about it. And when I say used to, I mean in the first few years of the business, uh, I had a lot of insecurity around you know, what market I should be in. And I had a lot of fear of missing out on other trends. But I, I ended up building a business in the compliance software space, not because I did a bunch of market research and I saw that it could support a, uh, a very profitable business or that uh, I was really into compliance and rules, because I'm not. I actually, I, I hate bureaucracy. I hate things that keep progress from moving uh, forward. And I kind of built a business around charging people for, uh, uh, for that. <laughs> One of the, the, the lesson I thought I felt like I, I took away from building ship compliant was it, it doesn't really matter to me what market I'm going to be in. It's more of, okay, what are the characteristics of the market? And can those characteristics support what ultimately I want to build as an organization? Okay. That makes sense. Well, you seem to have, I mean, so much of this is just baseline personality and I think that you're going to apply the tenacity and your underdog perseverance. That's going to be applied whatever the content is or the industry is that you pursue. So I imagine there'll be a lot of commonalities that you bring just by being you, which I think 
probably are the most important qualities you'll bring to your business. Those are your core values. What are you doing now? Well, I'm, uh, I feel like I'm quite, quite busy. We, we moved our, our family to, uh, to Spain. The children are enrolled in, in local schools. I'm spending a big chunk of my time uh, learning the local culture, catching up on life, connecting with my children that I, in a way that I, I, I didn't afford myself to do when I was building the business. Huh. And I'm uh, actively involved in the entrepreneurial communities here in Barcelona and helping other entrepreneurs think about their businesses and how they can uh, scale them. And in particular, I have a passion around uh, helping entrepreneurs uh, understand what they can do when they once they reach a point of success in terms of considering selling or considering keeping their, their business. Jason, if you weren't an entrepreneur, what would you be? So at this point, I have absolutely no idea. Wow. I would be. No. <laughs> that's a great answer. You know, that's not because I'm a flag-waving entrepreneur. I, I've had one company, <laughs> the way I look at it, and uh, I may or may not find success in the, in the next one. But uh, I, I know I want to lead a team. Uh, again, I know I want to build something that can create significance in people's lives again. So I hope I have that opportunity huh. once more. Great. Thanks for being honest. So if there's one thing that your experience, your unique experience you've had in the world could be offered to other people as a, as a specific singular teaching, what would it be? Some of the uniqueness of my story as a, as a business person is obviously the length of time founding and bootstrapping, building it to a profitable business, having a valuable business that could be bought by another party. And the think overriding lesson that I'm going to carry into whatever I do down the road is that at each ceiling that I hit moving from being a founder to becoming a, a, an entrepreneur of a, of a real business to becoming a CEO of a business that could really scale. Um, I, I had to change personally. I had to grow in different ways. And every time I went through that growth, it was really, really hard. Hmm. And in the early days, I would mistake that difficulty with, um, uh, I'm failing in this moment. And I think now I have the perspective that, you know, when it's really hard, it's, it's about to get, it's, it's, that's a good thing. And it's about to get better. So what's the one thing that during this phase where you're doing what you talked about, but maybe imagining what a next thing might look like, what's the biggest thing that you have to learn right now? The attribute of my own personality that I'm, I'm working on the most during this, this break that I'm really fortunate to have. Um, is actually to, to really and truly develop the ability to be present. Mm. When I was building the business, I was either in times looking in the past on regret on certain decisions that could have been optimized and had better outcomes, or I was firmly focused on the future. And yes, it made an impact on my family not really being in the moment, but it also made it a big impact on myself and my, my own ability to enjoy the ride better, being more present. And that is hands down what I'm working on at this stage of my life. I love that. That really comes through just listening to you talk. 
Thanks for joining us. You've heard today from Jason Eckenroth. He's the founder and former CEO of Ship Compliant. As always, Real Leaders Radio is brought to you by MergeLane, the accelerator and investment fund for startups with at least one female in leadership. Real Leaders also is sponsored by accounting firm Anton, Collins, and Mitchell. Feel free to reach out to them at acmllp.com. Thanks for being with us again, and we look forward to seeing you next time in the next episode of Real Leaders.